Men are built for the demands of life. The breadth of our shoulders bears the weight of responsibility in our homes. The depth of our voices projects strength to the world. And the length of our stride, our ambition, propels us toward career success. Man Up For Life is the coaching and speaking brand you need to reach the heights of your individual and organizational greatness. Responsibility, power, and ambition will cease to overwhelm you and begin to inspire you. To get started today, contact Demetrius Love at manupforlife at yahoo.com or at manupforlife across all social media platforms. Responsibility, power, ambition. Don't be overwhelmed. Be inspired. Start today. Thank me tomorrow. Welcome to episode 49 of the Motown Philly podcast. This is Tim Golden here with my co-host. What up, though? It's Jason Hall. What's going on? That's, that's right. Jason Hall from Detroit, Michigan. Tim Golden from the city of brotherly love. Jay is from Motown. I'm from Philly. Together yeah. we are the Motown Philly podcast promoting a message of communication, connection, and community. And there's a G there, too. Jay, the G is for gratitude. Tell everybody how grateful we are, brother. With that G, we some OGs. So, yo, if you guys are new to this podcast, we like to start off each and every podcast with a word and a moment of gratitude. First of all, we are we just want to say that we're grateful for you guys. Uh, we are definitely we w- definitely wouldn't be doing what we're doing if it were not for all of our listeners so there is a level of high gratitude and gratefulness just for you guys showing up each and every week on Sundays and even days afterwards as you upload and download this particular podcast that really centers us all in to how on how we can be better human beings um, through the modes of communication connection and community so yes we are so grateful for each and every one of you we want to also encourage you to share as we speak about these things that affect us in this day and age in this life we want you to share these things or these podcasts that resonate with you and even your family members or friends out there we want you to subscribe to the podcast. We want you to share it. We want you to like it, put stars up. We want you to hop into the the Facebook community, the Motown Philly Facebook community on Facebook and get in there and talk to us as well. Um, let us know how we're doing. All those things are, we're grateful for. So, Tim, that's what I got for you. Indeed. Yes, sir, brother. Jason's got the gratitude. Tim's got the gratitude. We are just here. You heard it correctly, 49 straight weeks of consistently delivering content, and this week is no exception. So thank you for all that you do for us. Listening audience, please go on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, whatever your favorite podcast hosting platform is, and make sure you subscribe to upload notifications make sure you download episodes share them with friends family colleagues and so forth and let's just keep growing in communication connection and community together well here we are jason episode 49 of the motown philly podcast and we're going to talk for the rest of this month about black tv and cinema 
July is the month when blockbuster movies tend to come out and when summertime movies are released in theaters and people rush to the theater to go see them. I don't know if the summer movie release phenomenon has lost its appeal mm-hmm. in recent years with the advent of streaming and with the proliferation of media's technology technological developments i don't know if it's the same but let's be a little nostalgic here on our podcast anyway and so what i'd like to do jason is see if we can set this conversation up by talking about black cinema and tv movies and tv shows in a philosophical frame Okay. So let's talk about them, Jason, in terms of truth. Truth. Hmm. There are break that down. Break break that down for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's do it. Let's do it. So there are at least two kinds of truth. There is what we might call objective truth, as in you are listening to the Motown Philly podcast right now. And Jason and I are recording the Motown Philly podcast right now. When we refer to objective truth, we are referring to a correspondence between the claims that we communicate and some state of affairs in the world. So if I say Jason and I are now recording the Motown Philly podcast and I'm sitting on my sofa eating popcorn, watching my favorite TV show. We would say that my statement is false because I have made a claim and there is no corresponding state of affairs existing in the world that supports my claim. So we say that's true. But if I'm sitting in front of my webcam and I see Jason on a video conference application and I see a clock and my microphone is working and I'm wearing headphones and I say that Jason and I are recording Motown Philly podcast, we say that statement is true. Why? Because there's a consistency between what I've said and some state of affairs in the world. So truth and falsity are part of objective truth. Objective truth is very important. Let me just make that clear. It's very important. But there are certain messages that can't really be communicated objectively. So, for instance, we might say that objective truth, as important as it is, has certain limitations. Jay, let me ask you something, man. You decide you're going to go out to dinner tonight and that no matter what happens, you are going to, uh, no matter who's talking to you, you're going to utter a statement that is objectively true. 
So you're going to go to the restaurant and you're going to sit down and the waitress is going to say, good evening, sir. What may I recommend for you tonight? We have a wonderful special on blah, blah, blah. And she talks about that. And she says, what would you like to have? Mm-hmm. And you said seven plus five is 12. Huh. Huh. You've told the truth. Facts. It's, it's a fact, right? Fact. That seven plus five is 12. Or you say, we, we are in Memphis, Tennessee. Facts. That's, that's a fact. But it's out of context. Because the question isn't, where are you? Or what is seven plus five? The question is, what would you like to order for dinner? Right? So objective truth is very important. It's indispensable for us to get along in the world, but it has its limitations. Suppose instead of that kind of truth, we said that there was another kind of truth, namely the kind of truth where I said, love your neighbor as you love yourself. And we call that a moral truth. Or if the truth was one who is your neighbor is anyone who is in need. Notice the difference. If I tell you seven plus five is 12, you can just go verify that. If I say I'm in Walla Walla, Washington, or Jason is in Memphis, Tennessee, you can go and you can verify that somehow. But how do you verify that your neighbor is anyone who is in need? And so what do we end up having? Now we're talking about black cinema and TV. What do we end up? What do we have end up happening? Well, in the other kind of truth, which we might call subjective truth, and I'm not talking about relativism. I'm not talking about, well, if it's true for me, then it's true. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the kind of truth that requires something of us. The kind of truth that demands something of us. So that when the Pharisees asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? His response was not to tell them your neighbor is someone who lives no more than 15, 15 paces from your front door. Instead, what did he do, Jason? He told the man a story. And it's in that story that the subjective truth was conveyed. And what is black cinema and television, if not stories? They are stories that communicate a certain type of truth. They communicate subjective truth, and they do it in a way that exposes us to comedy, tragedy to the tragic comic to horror to fear to all kind of emotions that exist within us and that is where we get art that's where art comes from so that's what we're talking about jason we are talking about black movies 
and black television in the context of storytelling that is designed to get people to see themselves in a way that objective truth can't accomplish. That's where we are, man. Communication, connection, community. What are your thoughts, Jay? I think it's a beautiful framework that you set out to kind of lay the foundation of how we're going to talk about cinema and movie and especially black cinema and movies and television shows. Because when you think about this, just the tragic story of how black people, African-Americans were brought here to this soil, it's a continuation of something in a lot of ways that is very tragic when you're just telling the the pure truth of the story of black and brown people. And you and I both know the story, even though very tragic of where we've come from and how we still have to struggle to find equality, uh, even in, even at this day and age. We still muster up ways to find joy, to find levity, to find a, a level of expression, creative expression that doesn't totally give way to the undergirding of the tragic story, which is the truth of the matter. Oh where we came from, how we got here and what and how are we how are we managing to make it forward in this thing called life in this America. And the art form of movies continue to tell our story, but as you said, it tells our story in very different ways whether it is comedy, whether it is drama, whether it is action filming, it tells a story of who we are, where we came from in various ways, art forms through various actors or directors or writers that um, that can't be told by any other people. And it's beautiful when you look at the whole thing. So I appreciate you for setting setting up the fact that truth needs to be told and sometimes the way it's told is it can be very hard to receive but telling it in a story by way of creative art through cinema or television shows a lot of a lot of whom you know which we've grown up watching you know we're going to start talking about the cosby sooner or later the cosby show whether it's you know all the other shows that or movies that we've kind of grown up with that told a story our story in a lot of ways i think this is going to be a real special month we're going to do a lot of cool things and talking about and setting up movies cinematography television shows and give some background i mean for those of you guys who do not know tim is a thespian <laughs> tim is an actor and um, amongst the many things that he does, and hopefully he'll get a chance and we'll get a chance to hear some of the background, some of the passion that comes to the art, comes from the art form, from the from the actor who is Tim, um, who gets out 
in in front of an audience of many at various different times and displays that creative genius that tells many stories of kind of where we came from and where we are. So this is going to be a real cool, cool month talking about cinema and diving into to you know where it came from and its purpose and how it how it affects our our culture now and what it communicates each time it's done you know that's right jay that's right and so when we talk about this month what we're doing we're talking about the next today and the next two weeks as you remember last week we had a wonderful guest with us uh, janet marisol reyes was with us and she did our uh, she did us a, a real solid last week talking about her work as a speech language pathologist and of course so that that cuts our month down into a three-week period rather than four so this is really week one even though we're technically in the middle of july right now we're uh, we're at week one of our of our black cinema and television month so you know jason as you were talking and you were talking about black cinema and television as a sort of ongoing portrayal of tragedy and of resistance political resistance social resistance because of course the images that we see on the screen images of of black actors black entertainers by the way I, I want to make this point and and we'll elaborate on it, I guess. Well, you know, I think we should talk about it now, probably. Sure. We, we are on the verge of perhaps on the verge of finding out just how much we take the creative arts and the performing arts for granted because the Screenwriters Guild and the Screen Actors Guild are now both on strike. And so, in a sense, Hollywood is shut down. TVs, movies. Why is this significant? Because all of your favorite television shows, all of your favorite movies, they don't come out of thin air, family. They are the result of massive creative endeavors that take place in writers' rooms. There are people who are professional screenwriters and their job is to sit in a room with other screenwriters and develop a story for a television program in the form of a script. And it isn't just the screenwriters. For those of you who are listening that are familiar with the Christian tradition, you might consider this analog. In the Bible, there is the difference between the word and the word made flesh. The word is what the screenwriters produce, but it is the actors that make the word flesh. I mean, my favorite TV shows, Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul, 
I just I just watch them over and over again because they're so good. The acting is good. The writing is good. I love everything about those shows. And one of the things that you have to appreciate about it is that the actors take those words that are on the page and they become other people than who they really are. Brian Cranston ceases to be Brian Cranston and becomes Walter White, high school chemistry teacher who has underachieved his whole life being diagnosed with cancer and suddenly deciding to manufacture and sell methamphetamine. Like somebody came up with that story, Jason. Like, I mean, we, we tend to take for granted that these things just happen and, and shout out to the screen actors guild and to the, the screen writers guild. I hope that the strike is resolved without too much financial or industry hardship. And, and I hope they come to the table quickly and, and reach some sort of agreement or, or collective bargaining. So I hope things work out well for them. Yeah, I, I don't know. I think, you know, this would be a great thing for somebody to go into the Motown Philly podcast Facebook group and make a comment about it. If if you know uh, detail about when we had the last uh, strike, writer strike and actor strike in Hollywood. I don't know. I heard something on the news today about when the last time was that this happened, but I don't want to misquote it for fear of being wrong, which I probably would be if I did. But it doesn't happen too often. And what's fascinating to me, Jason, is that you have people who create a steady stream of of what we today we call content but I don't, I don't that word content is it's like it's so overused and I don't really think it's applicable in this situation. These are artists, Jason. These are the these are the people who in a sense are the lifeblood of our culture. And the importance of the work that they do really can't be overstated. So I, I just I don't know what tell us what you think about that, Jay. I just thought it was important to pause here and talk about how if if subjective truth and moral truth is so important and we have people in screenwriters and actors who both produce the word and then make the word flesh and create an alternate world that enables us to see ourselves and reflect on ourselves and maybe live better, better lives. I think that's pretty important that we don't take that for granted. Don't you say, Jason? I mean, I think so. And I think that as I as I hear you speaking about the word and making it become flesh, I'm, I really kind of dive into like, this is one of the main reasons for our podcast, because we don't necessarily live on the surface of things. We like to get down to the heart of things and understand how it communicates to us and how therefore it communicates to other people as well. And it doesn't miss me on the fact that we're talking about uh, black cinema and movies, but we're also in the midst of, like you said, is it called SAG or the right? the, the SAG, um, the Screen Actors Guild. 
Yeah. yeah. And and how they are on strike. And all of a sudden, if you really think about what that is, it's it is the stoppage of creative entertainment when it comes to cinema and shows from Hollywood. Like you said, Hollywood is literally shut down. And maybe right now, because there's so much uh, art that art as far as screen art that has been made, you know, of course, we have reruns and, and perpetuity. But point is, like, if just imagine if Hollywood shut down, <laughs> like shut down, shut down, like um, there wouldn't be a way to kind of escape, if you will, from time to time and get these subtle truths poured into our spirit that makes us that inspires us or that you know drives us forward to to think uh on even higher heights uh, about things that go on in our in our our daily lives and our experience so just the shutdown of the sag and what what's going on with hollywood just gives us a chance in this moment to pause and say what is it all about and what does it really do and kind of celebrate if you will the idea of cinema and how it um, and what it speaks to us how it impacts us how it communicates to us and and what it has done over the years and decades to kind of help transform the landscape of our culture in this in this country and even all around the world because movies television shows cinematography they communicate so much that just your normal normal um, I don't know politician or preacher or professor or even entrepreneur just can't necessarily communicate by themselves but when given a story and some fi- good filming behind it and it doesn't even have to be necessarily good filming some type of video visual it really can bring a story to life and impact a lot of people. Yeah, Jason, I want to pick up on that point because I have to share a story of mine regarding this intractable problem of race and racism in the United States and how art, artistic interventions, particularly in performance art, in theater and in film, can make a difference. So seven years ago, I began to perform with a an acting ensemble in Portland, Oregon called the August Wilson Red Door Project. And we performed a show called Hands Up. And this was in the wake of the killing of Michael Brown. This is before George Floyd, but this was around the time of Eric Garner and Philando Castile and Rakia Boyd and it just seemed like there was one black person seemed like there was a black person being shot and killed by the police who was innocent and unarmed about every 10 minutes and I performed a monologue and in the monologue for those of you who are listening This is not Tim Golden talking. This is the character that I portrayed. Uh, There was a part of the monologue where, and again, plug your ears if you don't want to hear it, uh, parental advisory, it's a bad word coming up. My character said, fuck you to the audience. 
And my character said that in the context of expressing his disgust with the hypocrisy of police departments who say that black people in their communities are not compliant with police investigations on one hand and then turn around and on the other hand justify police misconduct by not allowing themselves to be appropriately investigated whenever there is police alleged police misconduct and after the show a white woman speedily approached me and she said to me thank you for telling me fuck you I needed to hear that now I'm as you might imagine I'm blown away but I think the point here is a powerful one chances are if I approached that white woman and we had a conversation about race and racism and I uttered that expletive during that conversation we would have gone nowhere fast but think about this mode of artistic communication and how it built connection between us and hence it built community between us because rather than me walking away from her frustrated she is running to me interested right she's running to me interested and she says to me thank you i really needed to hear that wow talk about communication connection and community and for those of you who can't see past the fact that oh tim uttered a bad word i can't believe it for those of you that can't see past that understand this what is more profane the fact that i uttered that word in the context of a discussion about the power of art to build communication connection and community or the conditions that make art necessary in the first place so if you're going to be upset be upset about the profane conditions and not so much about the profane language that results from those conditions so i had to point that out jason because i think that's a powerful testament to exactly what we're talking about somebody wrote that monologue I didn't write it. Somebody wrote that monologue. That's the word. And I made the word flesh as an actor. And in doing that, I was able to build communication, connection and community with a total stranger who said to me, I will never forget this moment. Wow. Just wow, Jay. I think about Shonda Rhimes whether you like her or not, she has literally, through the stroke of a pen, created a world and or a universe that has started from Grey's Anatomy to Bridgerton on Netflix, and it consumes the minds of millions of people on a day-in and day-out basis for years. I mean, we hadn't even talked about Scandal. I mean, she just doesn't, the hits don't stop with this chick. She creates worlds and people bring them to life. And it's utterly amazing. And she has 
and how she does it and how she keeps on doing it and how it's fascinating and smart and current like she does this from a stroke of a pit it's crazy it, it is it is indicative of a gift it is indicative of a skill it, and we tend to we live in a society that dismisses that dismisses art that dismisses creatives but we can't live without it jason there's a reason why when countries are conquered the first thing to go is the art if a country gets invaded the first thing to go is the art of that of that cut of that culture because it has to be remade in the image of the conquering country it's no accident that the greatest poems happy or sad come from the greatest joy and the deepest sadness it's no accident that all this stuff comes from that but i tell you what we're going to do we're going to pick up this conversation on the other side and we're going to continue talking here about black cinema tv and the power of art to tell the truth not objectively but subjectively stay tuned hello motown philly family you all need to know that this podcast is sponsored by the speaker's mechanic the speaker's mechanic is a business enterprise of my co-host jason hall who is a communication skills coach and he's also published author of a book called a vocal owner's manual he works with professionals who are looking to improve their communication skills and i guarantee you that if you work with him he will improve yours check out his book on amazon again it's called a vocal owner's manual and you will be certain once you check him out to improve and get better because here at motown philly that's what we're all about and that's what his brand the speaker's mechanic is all about thanks so much for tuning in and thanks to the speaker's mechanic for this sponsorship here we are back on episode 49 of the Motown Philly podcast, and we are talking about black cinema and black TV in the context of, of art and the communication of truth. So Jason, just before we took the break, we were, we were discussing how black art it, it shows up in these in these wonderful people who create people who are create people who are creative. You were talking about Shonda Rhimes. Say what you want about them, whether you like them or not. You can criticize them all day long. Tyler Perry does the same thing. We might not like the worlds that he creates. We might not like the characters that bring his words to life, but he does exactly what he wants to do in the way that he wants to do it and you have to respect him for that regardless of what your opinions are i know a lot of black people are oh i don't like him i don't like Medea. i don't like the ignorant black people and the mammy syndrome and i just don't like the way that listen that's the same tired recycled debate that took place between paul lawrence dunbar who wrote his poetry in slave dialectic and Langston Hughes, who was of the more sophisticated Negro literati in New York City during the Harlem Renaissance. So we can debate that all day long, but the bottom line is creativity 
and the power of art is an integral part of black culture. And in this mode of cultural expression, black people are telling their stories. And let's, Jason, let's let's talk about some of these stories. You know, I, you know, I want to talk about horror for a minute because earlier you were talking about the black experience and coming to America and chains and all of those things. In a sense, the African-American experience, one could argue, is a horror movie. What's more horrifying than Botham Jean sitting in his house after a long day of work on a hot summer night, turning on the air conditioning, putting on some shorts, making himself a bowl of ice cream, and uh, putting make putting uh, eating him eating a bowl of ice cream, and ending up dead. That's that's hard. You know, one of the pro. You know what? The the real the real point of horror films is to take the most innocent person who has done just about nothing wrong and put that person in a situation that is completely out of their control. That's completely contingent. And is that not what happened to both of Gene? Uh, this is that this is not a movie script. This happened in real life, but we're talking about black cinema and black TV. So when I think about horror, the horror genre, and when I think of, and you know, we're so we go to the movies because we want to be scared, right? We want to be scared because we know it's not real. What is it like to be scared in real life? I mean, Jason, we have to, I think there's some things to explore here, man. Let's, let's talk about this for a minute. What in the world is, I mean, this is, and this is Jordan Peele, right? Jordan Peele had the creative that he is, has recently decided, you know what? I'm going to do a black twilight zone. I'm going to make films like get out. And I forget the other one that he made about the people who nope was a nope nope yeah yeah and and so he what he's doing with his art is essentially showing the horrifying side of the african-american experience and i to speak to that jason talk a little bit about horror with i mean i think he's the first one as an african-american to really step out into mainstream and express like white culture normally does because i don't know maybe they just had had the time the resources to express an imaginatory horror when black people often live the like our horror was lynching our horror story was uh, emmett teal you know our horror stories was like you know, we don't have resources and time to now go where 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 your boy um peel what's his what's his name jordan peel jordan peel does with nope and get out like he's actually now with the resources as in his imagination has the space the manpower the backing to create stories that we just never 
like we just never had the the mental the financial the creative space to to dwell in worlds of of you know normal normal mainstream horror but now he's doing it from a black experience like our our minds and our imagination too can go there and and create horrific um non-fiction or fictional uh type uh fictional storylines that that kind of still at the same time share the black the black experience but i just think we've been so entrenched in trauma with the lack of resources we ain't got we didn't have time we ain't got time to say what i want to say we ain't have time to 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 be dwelling on or let me be creative and create our own horror because we were often living horror every each and every day so the, the culture is moving forward right and 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 we and we and listen the reality for black people hasn't changed that much we're still living horror every day right i mean it, it, how dysfunctional is it when you are culturally conditioned through experience to be afraid of the political entity that is supposed to protect you and serve you to be genuinely afraid of people who are there to help you right and and let's let's just i want to make another point about the movie get out right when you watch get out to me what is so frightening is that black bodies black people's bodies in that movie the black male body is a mere object of scientific investigation. There is this attempt in the film to get at the bottom of what it is that makes a black male body excel physically. And is there an in, is there an asymmetry between the black body's physical prowess and its perceived mental, low mental capacity. Now, in case you think that was just in the movie, let's talk a little bit about the NFL's practice of race norming, which took place up until just about two years ago. In the summer of 2021, the NFL settled the lawsuit in which they were, they admittedly gave black players a lower cognitive baseline than they gave white players. And what that meant was that if you were black and you were experiencing symptoms of cognitive decline, it was more difficult for you to show cognitive decline because you were already near the bottom anyhow. But because they assumed that if you were white, you were inherently smarter, you were much closer to the top. So for years, white players were filing claims to the concussion fund and were being compensated and retired black players were doing the same exact thing, but their claims were being denied, denied. which led to the lawsuit. And is that not one of the principal themes of Get Out? They want to make him a study of scientific investigation. 
his girlfriend's dad is a doctor and he's a sophisticated neuroscientist and they have this trap set for him and the hip the hypnosis they hypnotize him and listen art imitates life art imitates life family and that's something that i think we really have to keep in mind so jason you said it nicely we don't need to go to the movies to be scared we could be scared walking down the street we could be scared you told me of incident happened to you this week and you could easily be scared trying to park in your driveway in broad daylight see a lot of white horror they gotta make the conditions dark and they gotta make they gotta put people in situations black folk could be walking down the street minding their own business in broad broad daylight. daylight and be scared to death we're laughing not because it's funny but because, I, mean, I wish you could see the look on Jason's face we're looking at each other like yeah that's what happens Jay talk to me I mean I'm tempted to share about <laughs> what happened to me but you're just you're right and I guess it just kind of plays into you know the artistry uh Peel, Mr. Peel, uh, in doing movies that are not just scary, but it definitely has context to the human, the black human experience. And us getting a chance to kind of unpack cinematography uh, from the black experience in, in this, in in these few episodes today and in the next couple of that we'll have will truly be an experience for both of us and a journey as well as we get to help communicate how these stories that we've seen like i've said over the past you know several years and decades of our lives as as black cinematography has become more mainstream and we get to really talk and 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 really express how these things or these these works of art have have really impacted us uh, and told a story a story that if we didn't actually necessarily see them would be untold story for a lot of people that's right untold story so all right so we we touched on horror let's and we can talk about we can talk about tv shows too because we talk about tv and cinema Let's talk about comedy, Jason. Let's talk about the comic genre. Because I think there's something interesting about the comedy genre in African-American cinema and TV. Because, and you and I talked about this the other day in our production meeting. The symbol for the theater is a face that's laughing and a face that's crying. And they represent comedy and tragedy, respectively. And when you think about black comedy, whether it be TV or movies, there are times when the situation is so tragic that the only thing that can rescue us 
is a good laugh. And so we laugh to keep from crying. So I'm thinking about Sanford and Son, right? Early 1970s show with Damon Wilson, Red Fox, Lamont, and Fred. Lamont's in his mid-30s, lives with his pop, who was a widower. His wife, Elizabeth, is dead, and we only hear about her when he says he's coming to join us because he's going to have the big one. This is the big one, Elizabeth. I'm coming to join me, right? And and we have Aunt Esther, and we have, I forget Aunt Esther's husband's name, but anyhow, you have these two black men who abide in junk. They live in junk. They live in a junkyard. What does that say about the condition of black manhood or black masculinity to, to be confined to trash, to be surrounded with trash and to be confined and surrounded with trash in Watts in the Watts neighborhood of Los Angeles, a neighborhood that at that time when the show was made, arguably has never recovered from the 1968 riots. You have black folk who lived there in the aftermath and who, despite being surrounded by trash, still find a way to eke out a life. They find out a way to love each other. They find out ways to negotiate familial conflicts and they find out ways to try to be better people in relationship with one another. And in a sense, what to me is so tragic about it is, of course, the the fact that it is, it's a metaphor for the condition of, of black men and black masculinity being stuck in that situation. But then I have hope because I see that even in the worst of those situations, you have these two black men who find a space to love each other in their dance with mortality. I think that's very powerful. How about you, Jay? No, I think Sanford and Son, I love what you said. Just the poetic justice of it of it all. You do think about maybe, you know, maybe from a white perspective, it's not just comedy and it's just, I mean, who knows, but it's not just comedy. It's just like, yeah, they are there. They are where they should be. And but from our perspective, it's just like there is comedy there. There is this is the situation in which we live and we're going to make the best of it because, uh, you know, we weren't asked. We weren't asked to be here, but we here <laughs> <laughs> we we out here and, and because we out here. We go have fun. We together. We go. And yes, we have fun I love it. And. And we're going to talk about each other. But at the end of the day, we're going to yep. love each other. Aunt Esther walks into the... <laughs> she walks into the scene. He going off on her. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Bro, that's part of the culture. Yeah, right. I mean, I think we were, we were growing in culture. I think if you fast forward, and I know we'll get there, Martin yeah. in, in, in yeah. the uh, historical 90s uh, sitcom, the, the sitcom Martin... You know, it was basically Fred Sanford and Esther all over again with Pam and with Pam and Martin. You know, she walked <laughs> into the house, beat it, beat, beat it, beat. <laughs> you know, he was going, he was going off on her. You know, head so nappy, Wilson right. couldn't. <laughs> I mean, he just he got 
he got all these things that he's talking about and it's just communicating the culture uh, in and of that time i don't think that flies into the in 2023 it just doesn't i mean we we kind of i think we grew up and we graduated but let's be honest we weren't on we weren't we weren't on television much as far as whole shows featuring black actors until around the 70s. I don't I don't know about the 60s. I don't know what 60s shows have, you know, a full black cast um, with a with a couple of other individuals sprinkled in there. Um, I don't know how far you can kind of think back to um, television shows or sitcom comedies like before before Sanford son maybe it was the Jeffersons but I think the Jeffersons was a little bit late was, 70s yeah or so but. was yeah the Jeffersons was more late 70s early 80s I think you had Sanford and son and you had good times which also was out in the early 70s as I remember in conversations with my parents the one of the first black people to ever have a primetime TV show was Nat King Cole and he had a, a sort of entertainment variety show. I guess in those days, programming was only about 15 to 20 minutes. And then he got expanded to a half an hour. And he had sponsors who were paying. And he was, it was something that was scandalous because, of course, Nat King Cole was this, you know, rich, deep chocolate, handsome man. And he had white women fawning all over him right and i mean nobody i mean you listen to nat king cole sing a song he, boy it'll it'll yeah he he had it right and charm sophistication intellect all of that and that was sort of revolutionary so i don't know and that was probably sometime in the in the 50s maybe mid to late 50s early 60s i don't know but I don't know of any other real black sitcoms that existed until the Sanford and Sons and the Good Timeses of the world came on in the 70s. But those shows, I mean, you you really laugh to keep from crying. Look at the Evans family. Here's, here's it. I mean, Jay, this is a family who basically tried to do the right thing at every turn were they imperfect yeah did they have dysfunctional relationships yeah jj and thelma didn't get along and 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 the pop pops was coming down with an iron fist and he wasn't always right and whole florida she trying to you know take care of the kids and take care of the house walona nosy neighbor coming from across the you know you had all of that and then that's where janet jackson got her start right she was a little girl she was penny and then you know she was they brought up the issue of child abuse in the black community that was yeah, that man. was big man i mean those are big big shows and big subjects and it just goes to show you to me what i love about it like i said about sanford and son is the resiliency of black life that even in the worst of situations black people find ways to love they find ways to connect Laugh. Like you said, we, you know, we might not want to be here, but we here and we going to love on each other while we here. Right. The best way we know how it's funny when you now that you brought up uh, good times and when you really think about the historical arc of that particular show, 
it really wasn't a show about good times. <laughs> it like, come on, bro. Like, let's li- really dissect each one of the jun- each one of the episodes. <laughs> like, it wasn't a story about good times. And eat and let me tell you why we say why we know that. Because when we think that they are actually gonna have a good time. The joint is literally snatched right from their very grasp. And it's just like, ah, damn, damn, yeah, damn. Yes. Listen, man. You doing the Florida. Damn. Right. I mean, that's not good. Right. Time, it's bro. not, man. It's not. Well, you know what? Here's the wild part about it, right? The show is so tragic that when Thelma married this quarterback for the Chicago Bears, Keith Ferguson, that was they took it out of the ghetto but then he walking down the aisle and he tripped over jj tore his acl and his career was over so not only didn't the evans family move out of the ghetto he had to move into the ghetto with the evans family good time good times and but you know what's funny as as ironic as the title is what is so powerful about the show is that even though it was the show was not about good times, they found good times in tragedy. You know? Oh man, that's crazy, man. And that's 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 the story of the culture, yes. bro. That is the story of the culture. Um, you think about one of the like that was a sad episode that you talked about how your boy he, the, he, the, Keith, Keith, he was a quarterback back. for the Bears. He's a quarterback. He's the quarterback of a very prominent yeah, position, yeah. high paying position. If you, yeah. you know, very much, very much an all star, an all pro at, at, at his position. Um, I think about the for me, the worst one of the worst tragic episodes is when James died, yeah. but. How did he die? Going to get a job, bro, in another state. He was going to get a job, so they he already had the job, and he was down there getting in Mississippi, getting stuff set up for his family, and he was killed in a car accident. Mississippi, and we could listen. It could be a spinoff. It could be a spinoff series to that mug as to how he acted. Right. Right. They, he died in Mississippi. Black man died in Mississippi. They right. said it was a car accident, but we found him hanging from a tree. You know what I'm saying? Like, come on, man. That's the, uh, I'm laughing, but that's that's that, bro. That's bro. The life. That is the life of art living itself. Yes, out, bro. man. In real in, life. in real life, and so we're talking about if you're if you're listening to us, we're talking about truth and the communication of truth not objective truth like math or science but subjective truth the subjective truths of morality of spirituality and of art and how that shows up in black cinema and television so so we mentioned some classic 70s shows jason and we could move into the 80s of course, you mentioned George Jefferson. Here's another tragic figure. And George is, you know, George is never going to be accepted by white people, right? He owns a string of dry cleaners in New York City in the mid-70s, and 
He's the moving on up. They moving on up. And him and Wheezy, they got a deluxe apartment in the sky. And they got a son, Lionel, who's going to be an engineer. And what do we see? We see Recycle from Sanford and Son. We see George and Sassy Maids, Florence. They was always at each other. Always. She always joking on him for being short. He joking on her for being ugly. I mean, they and they never really were able to to get. I mean, that was the tragic dimension of George Jefferson was that he was never going to be accepted. And part of him didn't care because what he all what he really did care about was his wife, his son, you know, his family and, and so forth. So you got you got the Jeffersons. You got good times. Let's. But let's learn. Let's lean in a little yeah. bit more. Like, why, why was Fred always capping on? Yeah, yeah. Capping. Different type of capping, yeah. right? Why was Fred always getting that on Esther? Why was you know? And that, and honestly, it was acceptable. It's, it was put on TV. And guess what? It's not. It wasn't a secret in our community right. that that's kind of that. That's the, we get the dozens right. out of that, you know. We get the yo mama jokes out of that, like, like that was that was communication discourse in some way at its not. No, I was not. I'm not gonna say at its highest level. At, <laughs> it was it was a type of levity slash tragedy of of cultural norms at the time. That honestly, come on, bro. If that was if Florence, if that was my mama, and this dude and, <laughs> and this dude is is going at her like that ain't appropriate, bro. But it was the it was the culture, and we all honestly we all sat and laughed. It, it was it was the culture, and in some ways I think it still is. But the dozens might not be as popular. Go back if y'all are listening. Go back and listen to our episode i think it's around episode 12 or 13 it's way back wow we can talk about last year's episodes now right jay but we did an episode on the dozens and communication so go back and check that out if you haven't uh look it up for sure you'll i think you'll enjoy that episode well with with fred though jason i do think on esther was his ex was his sister-in-law right so Based on some of the things you hear on Esther say, like I never liked you anyway, Fred Sanford. My sister deserved better than you, and blah blah. So there arguably could be some animus and some bitterness between Fred and Aunt Esther. But lines like "I can stick your face in some dough and make gorilla cookies," like <laughs> Fred, it was just relentless. And and so yeah, I, I don't know. And I mean, and look, Aunt Esther would go toe-to-toe with Fred. She'd come right back at him. She'd be like, you old heathen. You know, I mean, she, you know, a fish-eyed fool, right? So, the insult, I mean, I don't know. Is that a manifestation of... So, here, here's the thing. Again, for those of you that read scripture, you follow along the story. When Jesus met the demon-possessed man, he asked him, What's your name? And the demon possessed man said, my name is Legion, for we are many. Now, a Legion 
is about 10,000, I think, Roman soldiers. What's interesting is that that man was a microcosm of Israel's colonial situation. And when folk have been colonized, they want to lash out against the colonizer, but because they're disempowered to do that, they end up turning that energy onto themselves, which is why in the Bible story, Jesus sees the man among the tombs, cutting himself with stones. He's occupied by a foreign power and ends up engaging in self-harm. And I wonder if we can say, whether it's Fred and Aunt Esther or Martin and Pam or George Jefferson and Florence, that that is an act of self-harm engendered by an outward sense of frustration and desire to conquer whites. But because we can't do it, we rechannel that energy among ourselves in destructive ways and just look for ways to hurt one another. Wow, 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 wow. Y'all see what Tim did? Y'all see, you see, you see what Tim's my guy? You see why he's my brother? You see how why I rock with Tim? Yo, like it's an acting out. It it's it's crazy how you describe that because I don't think I've as, as many Bible stories and interpretations um and commentaries I've heard on that particular story. Like I've never thought or heard of the the person who was who was possessed by multiple uh, demons if you will like I never heard of him uh, or the comparison of him acting out because there were many because of the colonization of, of that, that day and age to them and and I think I think that's really man I think that might be at the root of that because Aunt Esther and Fred they were Gotta be. Man, these people can't. You can't talk to nobody like that, man. The way they talk to each other, you know, and Martin and Pam. It's behavior, bro. you know. Yeah, it's it's behavior. If you want to go back to bringing the cinema, bringing the film into it, like you look at Django. <laughs> Django, yeah. And, and and you look at Samuel Jackson mm. character, and just feel like you have the ability to scold us to punish us to to do and say these things as if you are the boss as if you are the plantation owner and bro you you, you had check just like us right that's right it's wild man it's it's wild so let's let's talk about some 90s tv and and cinema wait wait dude dude i I'm not sure if we could skip totally over the 80s just for this one oh. particular, just because of this one. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. A show that has changed my life, and I'm so oh gosh, how could we ever? Yes, please. And, and this this show is the mm. Cosby Show. Yes, absolutely. And if you guys are of uh, 80s babies, 70s babies, and so on, like you guys know that that was a show for the effing culture man it, it just it changed the landscape because we as black people black and brown people were able to see for the first time professional uh, professional uh, professionals who were black in spaces 
that we had never seen ourselves before. And this is why shows and cinema is so important because how do we aspire if we've never seen it before? And having the experience of what the Cosby show is and the spinoffs that came from it, Tim and I probably wouldn't be talking to you now if we weren't heavily influenced by what we saw every Thursday night, depending on where you live, at 8 o'clock uh, Eastern Standard Time and going to school and talking about what happened on the Cosby show the next day. I mean, who can forget the, go the Gordon Gartrell shirt by your boy Theo Huxtable? I mean, that's this epic. epic. Yes, Jay. Yes, man. It, listen, Bill Cosby might be a pariah. Whatever you think about him. We're not talking about Bill Cosby right now. We're talking about Heathcliff Huxley and his wife, Claire, yeah, yeah, yeah. and their children, Sandra, Denise, Theo, and Rudy. And what they pumped into American households, specifically in the black households, led a generation of people to college generally led a generation of black people to not only to college generally uh which is true of me but also to hbcus which is also true of me but that was because of the spinoff a different world the ongoing love interest of Dwayne wade in in whitley gilbert uh, Dwayne Wade. Listen to me. Dwayne, Dwayne Wayne. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Not Dwayne Wade. Dwayne, Dwayne Wayne and his interest in, in Whitley, his friendship with Ron and all of the different characters on that show. A young Marissa Tomei got her start on A Different World, right? And so, yeah, the influence was just unbelievable. I am a product of an HBCU where I went to law school, the Thurgood Marshall School of Law at Texas Southern University. Jay, you're a product of an HBCU at Tennessee State. Of course, I went to the real TSU, but yeah, whatever. But Jason's a graduate of HBCU, and I, I think it's safe to say, Jason, that like you said, neither one of us would be here where we are today were it not for the influence of the Cosby show, which showed me that it was possible to be a black boy, that it was possible to be a black lawyer and to be good at it. And that was a black woman in Felicia Rashad, who was Claire Huxtable. Right. And, and watching her and seeing her move and, and then Bill Cosby would do it up with the HBCU paraphernalia. The t-shirts, the sweatshirts, he, where else are you going to sit on primetime TV and see somebody wearing a Wilberforce University shirt, you know? And I'd like to think, I don't know, it would have been awesome if he had put on an Oakwood shirt, right? An Oakwood uh, t-shirt or something like that. I don't know if he ever wore a Texas Southern shirt or anything or any Thurgood Marshall School of Law gear, but yeah, man, the Cosby Show definitely propelled a generation of young black people into college, into HBCUs, and into the professional ranks 
that many of us are now occupy today. One of the reasons I listen to jazz when I grade my exams is not only because of my, of my father's influence, and he was a jazz musician, but the presence of jazz on the Cosby show, right? It was it was sort of there in the background. So it's a, it's a beautiful thing, man. It's a whole bunch of characters <laughs> in, in the show, in the show of a different world that we just. I saw my space. I saw myself in college because of because of that show. And I even think about the film School. Oh, School Taste is a classic. Exactly. <laughs> um, I can't say that was a spinoff of the Cosby Show, but that was yeah. around the, you know, the late 80s, 88. 90s yep. when that. When, yeah. Yep. There you go, chick. Um, when when that particular film came out heavy influence on me thinking about yo i gotta start thinking about college and when i really wasn't um, because, uh, you know it just wasn't it wasn't necessarily pushed in my home you got to go to college although my mom definitely made mention of it but it was those outside influences that i saw in film that i saw in the television show shows that i consumed were people who looked like me you know what i'm saying and uh, they were thriving and they were aspiring to be better, to be great, to be in a space where uh, they can actually make a influence of service, you know, to others and not just themselves. So it was just cool, cool, cool to see and cold. And I love the Cosby show, love different worlds, school days and so on. So we graduate from the 80s and we go into the 90s. I got Fresh Prince, man. Bel Air. A young, a young Nia Long got her start on the Fresh Prince of Bel Air as Lisa, Will's girlfriend. Uh, bro, the nineties were so sick, bro. Dude. Like you got, you got, you got Fresh Prince. I got, I, I see your Fresh Prince and raise you Martin yeah, I, on that because you know those, those. Of course, man. Those are two amazing. Yeah, stuff. I mean, and you, go ahead. I'm sorry. You, you just think of those shows and how, oh, bro, we still singing. Um, now this is the story. We still singing Fresh Prince of every, Bel-Air. Like 30 Every time later. I meet somebody and they ask me where I'm from and I say Philadelphia, born and raised there. They say West Philadelphia, born and raised. I'm like, stop it, bro. You killing me with that. So yeah, man, the show's just they're, they're just iconic. I mean, Uncle Phil, Aunt Viv, Ashley, Carlton, Will. Wow, wow. Jeffrey, don't forget Jeffrey. And, and Jeffrey, yes, yes, Jeffrey. What a show. Uh, Martin, Martin Payne, radio disc jockey in Detroit. Yes. His girlfriend Gina. Tommy, who ain't never had a job, Cole, and Pam. Yo, chick, I'm getting goosebumps because you know what? That show, the one that you first, the one that you first, you first spoke about, planting the seed in the '90s, was about a young man from Philly. Even though it was in Cali, but that was it had a straight up Philly vibe because of yeah. Will Smith. Yeah. Period. And then you got Martin from the yes D- Motel Philly like, baby. They laid the groundwork. Oh, I love it. <laughs> I love it, yes, bro. Yes, I love that. 
coming together to be an awesome force. And then them jokers did bad boys as far yeah. as the, the uh that went to the That's big right. screen and the two forces because they were in in certain ways, in kind ways, I guess, battling each other mm-hmm. for rating um in that evening spot in the nineties. But you know, you could never put you can never put Martin and Will Smith against each other just because of who they are and their personalities and and how they were. And then later on in the nineties, they joined joined forces to franchise the ba- the Bad yeah. Boys, uh, the Bad Boys franchise. Continue to make yeah. movies even into this. Yeah, it just did just Maybe. great, great iconic figures, man. The you know the interesting thing about Martin was that Martin didn't just rag on Pam he would go after his own girlfriend talking about how big her head was remember the episode when her head got stuck in the bed frame and Mark was like you not gonna be able to get it out Gina your head too big oh man Martin changed cultures just like fresh just like Will Smith did man Martin out of that particular sitcom many like American phrases or or like words ex- words of expression and communication talk to the hand you ain't got you know right you know what you don't got to leave you ain't got to get up out of my house but you gotta get the hell yeah. out of here yeah like, like he Martin and his antics have like transcended the show yeah. uh, for, for for years after it and what yeah. he brought right <laughs> Martin slammed on. He slammed everybody. on his girl. He slammed on Pam. And here's another. Here's another Martin colloquialism that came out of that show. You got to step, get to stepping, which is what he was always telling Broadband, who stayed up in the fridge. I'm just making a sandwich. Boy, you don't get your. If you don't get your ignorant behind out my house. Oh, I love it. Love it. Yes, good stuff, man. And then in the early 2000s, right, you had a series of shows. You had uh, one-on-one, half and half. You had Terrence Howard starting out his career. He was actually late 90s. There was a TV show called Sparks with Uncle Phil as a lawyer on the law firm and Robin Givens and and then you had, of course, Terrence Howard was one of the lawyers who worked there. And and you had a you know a number of, of shows. In the late 90s, you had WB, the network. I used to say WB stood for We Black. You had Robert Townsend. They had The Parenthood. That was a show, a black show. The, the Steve Harvey show, Romeo and Bullethead. And yeah, I remember. I mean, those were... Those were decent shows, man. They were they were good shows. Boys in the Hood, New Jack City. Yo, when did New Jack come out? New Jack City came out in 91, and it came out the same summer as Boys in the Hood, which also came out in 91. Yo, Tim, how you I, You know how I remember it, man? Because I remember running to the movies to go see them, man. I remember th- I was in Houston, Texas. It was the summer of 91. It was a boiling hot. I was going into my second year of law school, man. I was going to the I went to the movies and I remember seeing New Jack City 
one weekend and then the next weekend I went to go see Boys in the Hood and some of the classic lines from the movie, man. I remember when when uh when Whitley Phipps's character Whitley Phipps. I said, What the, what is wrong with me? Whitley Phipps? Boy it's, a, it's Friday night. Yeah, I'm talking about Wesley Wesley Snipes's character, Nino Brown. That was his name. Nino Nino Brown reaches out and hugs G Money just before he kills him. He says, I'm on the run, G. And he hugs him and you see the thug tear coming down. <laughs> and and oh man, that's yeah, I'm on the run, G. And then boys in the hood, you and I say this all the time. They don't know. They don't, don't show. They don't show. Or they just don't care what's going on don't in the hood. They don't care, boss. Classic, Classic dope. dope. Uh, let's not run past. Let's not run past. Oh, do the right thing. Do the right thing. Yeah, man. That late 80s. Early 90s. Do the right thing was 88. I remember School Days came out early in the year. Do the right thing was a summer blockbuster movie that provoked a ton of conversation. And sadly, what happened to Radio Raheem will continue has continued to happen it happened to eric garner in new york when he said he couldn't breathe right i mean when you look about you look at do the right thing and you think of the themes of that movie and of course police brutality being one of them you see how brilliant spike lee is in terms of his ideas right and how he put that script together and put that film together. That was great. Samuel L. Jackson was in that movie. He was the DJ. And you had... Uh, God, wait. Is that Samuel's first mute movie? Help me out. I don't, maybe not. I don't know. I know Samuel started... He started late. He was like... He, was, he didn't start acting until he was 45 years old. Right. Was, the, was was that his first one or was another was uh was it coming to america his first oh uh, coming to america maybe yeah i know in the late 80s he was performing on he was doing theater before he did film if if i'm not mistaken i think he did he was performing on broadway him you know the movie a soldier's story it was based on the theater theatrical performance of a play called a soldier's play and uh, Samuel L. Jackson was in that show, and he was cast in that show with Denzel Washington, uh, Adolf Caesar, a number of great actors, black actors who were in that film. But yeah, yep. Wow, wow. Those are some good, yeah, you can't skip through Boys in the Hood and uh, New Jack City. Those were those were classics and they were they were timely too because they were addressing social problems like the crack epidemic and the crack epidemic was really at its height at that time so yeah yeah it's interesting man florida evans whoever it is in the end these actors and these scripts and these stories tell us something that objective truth could never communicate because they speak to our hearts 
They speak to our minds and they speak to our souls. So, Jay, listen, folks, next week is episode 5-0, episode 50 of the Motown Philly podcast. We're just moving right along. We're going to be continuing our conversation about black cinema and TV, and we're just going to move forward and know that more content is coming your way. We have more special guests lined up in the near future. We have an extraordinarily dope guest lined up for August. We have another one lined up for September. Stay tuned. You don't want to miss it. Listen, folks, subscribe, get those upload notifications, download, share with your friends, share with your family. Motown Philly, folks, we're all about communication, connection, and community. And until next time, we out of here like Vladimir. Peace.